This is the Real Good Podcast. My name is John Roebuck. With me is Blake Clarence Curtis. G'day, guys. Derek Alabama Armstrong. Ooh, I like it. And Zoe Drexel Coldham. Yay. There's four people in this podcast and <sighs> this episode. And this episode is called Killing Zoe. And that's because this is Zoe's last episode for a long time. Oh, no. And there's, a, there's like a Roger Avery connection in there, it too, is. isn't there? I knew you'd pick that up. Uh, she's going overseas to find herself. And one of her favourite, if not her actual favourite movies, I forgot to double check, is Tony Scott's True Romance. This is my favourite all-time of number all time. one. I is Blade it? Runner was all-time. No. You definitely told me well, Blade they're both the last time I hung out with you. They're both directed by Scott. She has Scots, lots of all-time so favourites. Loves the Scots. Love the Scots. Love the Scots. Um, I'm going to read out a synopsis of True Romance. Wait, did we just say what was happening with Zoe, though? Yeah, I'm finding myself. Overseas. Oh, we did no, we say that. She's back. I yeah. wasn't paying attention. Yeah, I know. Where'd you go? <laughs> Derek. <sighs> Here's a synopsis for True Romance we found on the internet. A comic book nerd and Elvis fanatic Clarence, played by Christian Slater, and a prostitute named Alabama, played by Patricia Arquette, fall in love. Clarence breaks the news to her pimp and ends up killing him. He grabs a suitcase of cocaine on his way out, thinking it is Alabama's clothing. The two hit the road for California, hoping to sell the cocaine, but the mob is soon after them. Zoe, go! <laughs> uh, I, was, I was trying to figure out why I love this film so much, and it's hard to, to just decipher when you just automatically sort of um, warm to something. But I've figured out that I think it's the romantic in me that loves this film. Uh, I watched it at a time where I was watching a lot of... I was sort of getting into cinema and I was watching a lot of very grim films that had sort of quite brutal endings. And this film kind of does the opposite. It's a love story, sort of a love mobster gangster film. Uh, and it's unconventional and it sort of goes against those storylines of Romeo and Juliet and like... What? So was that? What's oh. sort of nice about it is that I think, it, uh, especially the first half, it depicts people who are 100% on the same wavelength, almost like absurdly so. Like, and when he, like, when, like when he kills Drexel, well, spoiler alert, uh, the prostitute, she finds it romantic. And they're sort of, despite everything that's going on around them, they're just 100% yeah. compatible. Well, what you just said there that I actually hadn't thought about with this film for the first time is the concept of genre. Like, until you just, like, a penny just dropped with this film, because I love it as well and I could never quite articulate why, is you're right in that, it, like, it's a particular type of genre with gangsters and th th that's a particular, like, you expect dread and bad shit to happen yeah. from that genre. Yeah. And it plays against that completely and puts this beautiful heart and soul into this world where pimps and prostitutes exist. Yeah. Well, that's what I've never thought about it like that. Mm. Yeah, well, you, you're, you mentioned the romantic in you is um, attracted by this film. And I was, as I was watching it, I was thinking about how it's not prudish at all. It doesn't try to fit characters into a box of a, of a, of a traditional romance where, you know, everyone is basically pure in some way. I mean... She's a prostitute, you know. I mean, she comes clean, and she she's a, she's a whore with a heart of gold, if you want to use that old trope. But but she's not she's rough around the edges, and so is he. I mean, he's what, what I can't remember the store that he works in, but he's just like kind of like a, uh, a guy who's kind of roll, um, drifting through life, and he seems to be fine enough. But then he just kind of kills a pimp without too much concern about it, and 
the, the film doesn't say all oh, these people are you know perfect. They're not perfect. yeah you shouldn't well I, yeah. I think Clarence is almost a, you know Tarantino who wrote the film Tony Scott directed Absolutely. and I think even though it has a uh, before I go on to say what I was going to say I think it has a lot of connections to other Tony Scott directed films but I think the real authorship of this film is Tarantino like should go to Tarantino Absolutely. it was the second of his screenplays that was turned into a film and it's one of two that wasn't directed by him. He is that um, Christian Slater character. Well, well I think uh, he's, uh, and he's uh, mentions Charlie, Charlie Bronson um, a few times in the, uh, throughout his films, and I think Quentin Tarantino is sort of this amalgam. Sorry, Chris, uh, Cla- uh, Clarence is an amalgam of Quentin Tarantino yeah. and this Charlie Bronson sort of character. Um, he's sort of geeky enough to love Sonny Sheba and uh, enthuse over the first uh, edition of Spider-Man, but he's also steely enough to face up against pimps and gangsters uh, without sort of batting an eyelid, uh, without losing his cool. Um, and Tarantino has actually mentioned that uh, True Romance is um, his most autobiographical film, and there's a lot in the film that I don't think actually happened, or I doubt actually so happened. Tarantino killed a pimp. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, but I'm inclined, and that's why I'm inclined to believe that the autobiographical elements that he's referring to is to do with Clarence and sort of perhaps Clarence is Tarantino, but augmented augmented with the um, qualities that Tarantino admires. Mm. And well, even though he didn't direct this film, I this is my favourite Tarantino writer than he is a director. This this That's one of the things that shines in this film. It's so beautifully written. And I think that a lot of the time Tarantino overshadows his beautiful writing with his style and especially in his latest films, his style almost, um, he gets distracted by it and he he isn't even thinking about his writing anymore. But this film is purely his writing and somebody else has sort of taken it and made it as their own. And I think that's why I love it so much and don't, and maybe a Tarantino film isn't my favourite film, but this is because it's just so beautifully yeah. written. Well, I also think it brings out the strengths of Tony Scott, which are sometimes questionable over the course of his career. He's had a lot of real duds that, that had their own kind of style over substance element to them, but it's not the kind of the same kind of style as Tarantino. And actually, Tarantino's writing and Scott's style really complement each other well. It's a, it's a great yeah. match. I was wondering, though, what do you think we would see differently if Tarantino had directed it? Would there be a lot of, like, well, swish pans and things like that? Yeah, and, I think it would yeah. be over-stylized, yeah. and yeah. that would distract from just letting the characters... Well, well, sort of, I and I know it was stylized, but Tarantino almost, like, it's like he puts this, like, paste of sort of, like, yeah, like, as you said, like, well, all these transitions and all these things, and it's just... I this think it's going to become increasingly like that, though, and I think this film, the dialogue stylized, but not overwhelmingly so, like no. it's become. Mm-hmm. And I think he, his, the things he wrote, I mean, um, Reservoir Dogs, uh, this movie, uh, Pulp Fiction to a certain degree, uh, but that's a very Tarantino-y kind of movie, and Jackie Brown are his best written movies because he d- hasn't sort of developed that brand that he really uh, got carried away with, with, mm. with Kill True. Bill. True. And I think also with his last two films, he's become almost a caricature of himself. Yeah. And his yep. movies uh, almost sound like people who are trying to sound like Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Whereas this is actually just writing good dialogue. Yeah. And there are scenes that are very Tarantino-esque, but it's just like really well written. Whereas I think he, he's almost found this formula in the way he writes and he doesn't uh, push himself anymore. Well, I remember yeah. we studied him in uni when we were talking about postmodernism, because we were talking about the concept of, for people who don't know what postmodernism is, it's the concept of taking um, things that you like from other films, other genres, and uh, inserting them into your own work 
but reinventing it slightly. So it's the concept of Uma, Uma Thurman wearing that all yellow jumpsuit. Um, that is an homage to Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon because that is what he's wearing. That is what postmodernism is. And I think you're right, Jos. I think what he's done now is he has postmodernism himself. Like he has now gone to that next level. And I am with you. It, 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 it's not the same as what it is. It's almost the next chapter of his career. And that's why I'm kind of happy that he is declared that he's going to call it quit soon because I think he himself is like, I don't know where to go mm. beyond this point. Star Trek. Well, that's the, that's the thought. The other thing I, I really love about this film as well is it has the best, one of the best scenes I've ever seen in a film before in the scene where um, Christopher Walken mm -hmm. and Dennis Hopper are talking in that caravan and he's trying to find where they've gone. And the reason I love that scene so much is Dennis Hopper realises that he can't lie to Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken will be able to see through every lie that he tells. And, and so he also can't, um, like, uh, let give away where Clarence is because exactly. it's his he was son. He was never and he going to do that. Yeah, exactly. so he's stuck. Yeah. And so he's and stuck he in this survive. position yeah. and he knows that. And so in that moment when Dennis Hopper knows that, he asks for a cigarette and he tells this story that he knows is going to piss Christopher Walken off. Yeah. And it's, he does and it's awesome. It's such a good scene. Mm -hmm. And also I love that. I feel like in this film, it's trying. One of the messages is like sort of love conquers all, and all the people that are really good, they sort of survive, except for him. But as as he realizes that, and you realize he's not gonna, um, he's not gonna tell where Clarence is. That beautiful music comes in mm. again, and it's like every time people do things for love, that music just sort of like simmers back up and it's, and it's such so a good score yeah it? i know i love that they just decided to reuse that score yeah yeah it's yeah that was why I didn't well it's an homage no, that's <laughs> what postmodernism is so the first time i saw this movie i didn't like it precisely for that reason because i'd seen it within a year or two of having seen badlands and i said this is a ripoff of badlands no, it's and not it's a ripoff it's postmodernism i'm talking about the 20 year old me and not talking about me today because i appreciate this film immensely now but the first time i saw it i said this is a ripoff of badlands it's got the same essential structure with the with the the man and the woman on the run um and the, she even has narration in it um uh, patricia arquette's character has some narration which would recall terrence malick in some respects the second time i saw it none of that stuff mattered to me mm -hmm. i also was originally taken aback and didn't love so much that it was that the film fetishized elvis just because I thought that was kind of cliche, but now I don't care about that either. Like every time I watch this film, I like it a little bit better. And one of my favorite things about it is that it's constructed of a number of scenes of that scene where, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah. it's that scene where, mm -hmm. and you go throughout. So it, many. You have a succession of scenes where you look forward to what's going to happen next, like the fight with the pimp, the walk-in scene, like any of Brad Pitt's scenes. The scene where um, Alabama just beats the shit out of mm. what's his James name? James Gandolfini yeah. in Alabama oh. in the mm. Safari Inn, which was near where I lived in Los Angeles. You know, you just go. You go. The film, the script takes you from moment to moment. And you, and, you, and you say, oh, this is coming up soon. Yes. And you're, like, you're just excited about every mm. scene. And it's, yeah. it's, it's just such a propulsive movie. It just keeps moving forward that way. And I think this film has – it's got a strong female lead without, you know, going around going, oh, this is a strong female lead. It just has one and she beats the shit out of him and mm. it's so satisfying. Mm. And she just she, – she her character is just – 
as much there as Clarence is. It's but just at the same amazing. Time, she it's completely an emotional experience for her. It's not just like badass. I'm gonna kick your ass and no. walk away with it with it with a, a one liner. She's like that scene is just physically wrenching and mm. completely like um, visceral in terms of the violence done by each of them to the other one and the way that they're emotionally spent by the end of it. And it's just, it's not, it's, it, it's that part of it that's completely grounded in reality that I really appreciate also. Mm. Yeah. And it's as well, the other thing, it's like, it's the same reason I think I love Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Again, because I think Kaufman's a better writer than he is director. And so it's nice to see someone take a Tarantino thing that's been born and create it in, put their own kind of style into it. And you can't, there is a Tarantino cut of the film online that he himself. Is it? Yeah. And it's all kind of, it's non sequential. Everything's kind of, there's no, the timeline's not linear. It's all out of sync. And in the end, Clarence dies. No. And I'm so happy that he didn't make this film because that were the decisions he was going to make. It has to, it has to have that beautiful, happy ending. I, know. I mean, otherwise, it's just, okay. just like any other gangster film. That's it. However, I have a theory that you can take that ending two ways. One, one way is that, yes, Clarence got shot in the eye and died. The other way is that they he lived. It. If you're going to look at the he died perspective, there's that moment where there's, it goes into slow motion for a second and he starts to sit up. That could be the start of Alabama's fantasy that she's having. Like, this occurred to me as I was watching it. Do you guys, are you guys familiar with Carlito's Way? Have you seen that yeah, a lot? Yeah. The ending of that is kind of similar where Carlito is, well, spoiler alert, uh, you can stop listening for a second if you want. Carlito is lying on a gurney about to die in a hospital and he's looking at this picture uh, of a beach on the wall and imagining um, you know, his girlfriend or wife or whoever she is with a child away into that. And it's kind of like the same, it could be, you could look at it this way. So if you want to look at it as like her fantasy, you could. If you want to look at it as what really happens, you could. And that's what I love about that ending because you could take it either way. Well, what I, they, I think what they'd want you to do in that moment is they want the audience to decide, are you a romantic or not? I, I also think it sort of uh, almost doesn't matter because nothing in true romance reflects reality and nothing in any Tarantino films re reflect reality. They all sort of exist within this fantasy world and they actually all, I think, ex except for natural born killers, exist within the same sort of filmic universe like in Reservoir Dogs, Mr. White mentions Alabama mm. and then apparently there's a character in this who is the grandson of uh, 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 Donnie something in um, Inglorious Bastards. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, and I think um, he's sort of, he's more obsessed with mythology than he is with actually sort of like... Uh, reality. Reality. Mm. And, and uh, I mean, the characters in his films, especially his crime films, I think, obviously his Western films, definitely, but they operate under the same laws of reality as characters in, like, Sergio Leone's Westerns. Mm. And so, uh, you know, like, the man with no name is the character from the, uh, the, the Dollars trilogy, and yet he's a different character in every film. And I think in that sense... Reality doesn't matter, so it's sort of uh, the ending. It doesn't really matter whether it's a dream or it's not, because the whole film is so removed from reality. It's just a happy ending for the sake of a happy ending. Mm. But I liked what you said before, Zoe, about mm. the 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 characters who are good having a just outcome for them, like mm. um, like Dick Ritchie, the yeah. actor. Um, is he the actor? 
Yeah. He's the actor yeah, in the film. He's playing. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the the the, 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 the actor's name is Michael Rappaport, but um, he's playing the, the hapless actor who somehow gets cast in his role, even though he gives a terrible audition, which I think is a nice little bit of optimism there as well. He makes it out alive. Um, you know, Alabama and Clarence make it out alive, and everybody else who dies is basically a shithead. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> and you and you think it's like this tragic <laughs> ending when pretty much everyone dies but them, but you just like. That's the way it should be. That's a good I ending. I feel bad about, um, <laughs> I think his name is Al Michael Beach, the actor who, who flops down into the pile of feathers after oh, he gets shot in the stomach. Is that the feathers? Yeah, the theatrics in this film. I think yeah. I think Ridley Scott and Tony Scott have a thing for theatrical fil- films. Oh, yeah. Or sets. And they are after my heart with that because it is so beautiful. Like but those. I, I think it's telling that this film doesn't feel like a Tony Scott film and it's probably Tony Scott's best film. <laughs> like, but that's like, yeah. isn't that like really, like I feel like Tony Scott and Ridley Scott have, you know, a couple, a few amazing films in them and the rest is shit and I think that's okay. Yeah, and I wonder what the, like, I agree with you on that comment and I wonder what their demeanour was during that period. Were they believing in themselves, like thinking they're the best yeah. filmmaker in the world? They've just got or confidence they really issues. themselves? Like, I wonder where their psychological <laughs> brain was Scott's at. Ridley Scott's made be- f- good films more recently as well. Has he? I don't well, he's think made so. some bad films. Top Gun. I don't think he's made no, some... Ridley Scott. I don't think oh, Ridley, Ridley, Ridley. American Gangster's good. The Martian's yeah. good. Yeah, see, I, they're, for me, then forgettable films. Oh. But that's me. That's personal. But they're not me. bad. Mm. I think it's okay if you make, like, what? He's made so many, like, timeless, brilliant classics. Exactly. And that's that's what I'm holding him up to, which is a very mm. lofty standard. I think I what we should also mention is the bloody all-star cast in this. Oh, so Brad Pitt is in this film. I don't yeah. think we've mentioned that. Doesn't get off the couch oh, the whole he's time. Hilarious. He moves around the kitchen after Thelma and Louise. After, after. Then you've got yeah James Gandolfini. You've got yeah. Patricia Arquette, Dennis Hopper, Christopher Walken, Christopher Penn, and Tom Sizemore. Gary Oldman, and o- the ultimate shapeshifter of actors. Yeah. Like, he, he could be in every film that's ever been made and no one would notice. <laughs> yeah. he, don't you think? He, he's, like, been serious black. He's Gordon in uh, yeah. Dark Knight. Then he's this random Drexel character. He's amazing at Intigatatis on this And, he, and yeah. Winston Churchill, and he just yeah. won the Oscar Yeah, Wars. what? Mm. It's like, what? Yeah. That was Gary Oldman? Mm. What? It ain't white boy, day. <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that, it wasn't um, Elvis Patrick Swayze? I think he was. Um, no. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kilmer. Yeah, Kilmer. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, Kilmer. I think, of, I think yeah. it has two in the same. They just, kind of like they just put. They d- they have so many cameos, and but they like fun as well. They pull it off. It's not like um, oh. Matt Damon in whatever. What was that film where he had oh. that random cameo? Oh, there's a couple. He's in um, Interstellar. Interstellar. Weirdly. Yeah. And, and he's in Thor Ragnarok in a cameo. Yeah. And he's in yeah. Euro Trip. In a Euro Trip. That's what I was yeah. thinking of. But this film has has you know. cameos and they really pay off and they're really fun. And I think it's because every character sort of has a motivation and mm. a goal. And and so like that Dick Ritchie, amongst everything, he's like going for a role in a film. And you're kind of rooting for him on the side. And there's just like every character has something that they're working towards. Well, every know? character is strong. Even James yeah. Gandolfini in, uh, in that sort of – he's got this one scene. He does, yeah. He feels like it. every single character could oh. have a movie of their own. What about and he's Saul, still what about open – he's opening up to her. Yeah. And, yeah, it's so much depth. What about Saul Rubinek also? Who's that? As, um, as Lee Donowitz, the producer. Oh, yeah. He's, t- he's fantastic. Mm. Oh, and he's also, so can, I, can I tell you, do you know who's riding in the car with Bronson Pinchot when he gets pulled over? Anne Heche. What? 
Really? What are they doing? Why are they putting so many actors in this film? I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Where? I didn't look it up beforehand, but I'm pretty sure. Well, that yeah. just makes me think as well because I think some of those actors at the time weren't big yet. No. And so I think it shows their ability to, to notice good mm. work. They would have read the script and been like, this is good. I want to do something on this. Yeah. And not letting their ego get in the way of, I need to be the star of the show. Well, I, yeah. I, I remember uh, reading that that's how um, Tarantino got such a good um, cast for Pulp Fiction. It was sort of off the back of Reservoir Dogs and the success of that and people really responded to that. And also just uh, it's the quality of his writing. I also heard, and I've, I've never confirmed whether this was true, that Tony uh, that uh, Tony Tarantino Scott. sold this script to finance Reservoir Dogs? No, so no, what happened was... Oh, actually, so maybe. What what happened was um, Tarantino sent Tony Scott Reservoir Dogs and he sent him True Romance and he said, read these two scripts. And then Tony Scott was like, okay, which one do you want me to direct? And then Tarantino was like, you choose. And he chose True Romance. Wow. And, and then Tarantino directed Reservoir Dogs. And Oliver wow. Stone directed Natural Born Killers, which was directed, uh, written by Quentin Tarantino. And Quentin Tarantino was so pissed off with... Oliver Stone just rewriting it and completely mangling his vision that he punched him at a party. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. And and Tom Sizemore appears in both of the films that Tarantino wrote and did not direct, but does not appear in any films that he did direct. Tom Sizemore, (laughs) I really like him. Oh, man, he's a creep. Yeah, creep, but like he's got a, he's got a John, you just looked so sincere he when did. you said that. He did. It was I, re- I do. I really like I him. want it to be like, I like you, John. <laughs> every film that Tom Sizemore is, oh no, every time Tom, Tom Sizemore is on screen, except for that really weird porn, home porno he made, he's awesome. He's, a, he's good in Saving Private Ryan, he's good in this, he's good in uh, everything. The film uh, Strange Days, also the Bigelow film, yeah. Oh, is that that yeah, Bigelow with, film with Ray Fiennes? Uh, yeah. That's not a bad film. No, I like that a lot, yeah. Uh, okay, top three? Sure. Zoe, you introduced the top three. Okay, I'll... Derek, <laughs> you introduced the top three. <laughs> I just three. saw the look on her face. Uh, we it was meant to be top three things you'll miss about Zoe and then and no it got changed so I got angry and <laughs> just didn't even contribute. Uh, I, I thought we would do both. I thought oh, we'd no. Do a, um, two, uh, one top three one, and one mini top three. Anyway, um... What it is is our, our top three true romances. So basically, you can look at that as two ways. Films that we that we love, that may be respected by others, but we love them a bit more than other people do, which would be Zoe with True Romance. Or our top three true romances, which is like how Zoe feels about true romance, if you mm. see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, so uh, basically just three films that if I you were... I missed what you, the first one was. I, don't <laughs> wait, you I, think I, I think I just repeated the exact same thing twice. No, <laughs> it if, made sense to me. I got it. If you... Um, you just talk about films you love, essentially. If you picked your top 20 and you had three films in it that were like real outliers, that's, that's what it would be, yeah. right? Okay. Are you, you going to come up with yours right now on the spot, John? No, no, I have to find out. I just have misinterpreted it, and uh, I'll explain. doesn't matter. Yeah. Do whatever you want. Uh, Zoe, you go first. Have you got any? I've got, I've got some. Okay. okay, so True Romance is my number one. Okay. Uh, you got to go three. Three to one. Oh. Yeah, you build up the suspense. <laughs> I feel like you've done this in it's the past. It's your last episode. You <laughs> I, will, I never got to tell the rules. <laughs> three to one. Okay, so I'm... Three, my number three, is um, It's a Wonderful Life. Although I feel like maybe this film is extremely popular, but I'm not sure. I've heard of it. It's it's like a Christmas movie um, with James Stewart in it, mm. and it's really lovely. It's beautiful. And <coughs> I think people love it, but I absolutely love it. Like if, if I'm ever sad, I'll put that mm. film on. 
Have you ever watched the colour version? It's really Ew, weird. No, yeah, yeah, I've seen stills. Sounds oh, weird. Did, yeah, didn't like it. Number two? Um, number two is Rumblefish. Uh, by because uh, um, you got the hots for young Mickey Rourke. Cool. That's <laughs> yeah, that's Ooh, black and white. Also. Yes, this is black and white. Yeah. but true romance fish. is extremely <laughs> color. Yeah, uh, Rumblefish. I just watched it. I absolutely loved it, and then I've never even heard anyone else that's seen it. I've never seen it, but now yeah. you um, love it that much. It's Coppola, right? Yeah, it's Coppola. You love that that he much, and I love those other he two. Made so it, I've yeah. got to watch that. Next film after Apocalypse Now, I think I could be wrong. I think it was eighty-two or something. I couldn't tell you. Apocalypse Now was seventy-nine. Do you own it? Uh, I do. I couldn't tell you why I like it. I think it's. I just like films that sort of. I think have good writing and they don't try and achieve too much in, in how they're shot or, they've got good writing, good actors, and mm. I really appreciate that in film. I think. And then number one is true romance. And I feel the same way, and that's why I want to see Rumblefish because I f- love A Wonderful Life and True Romance the same way that you do. You know. Yeah. So Rumblefish has got me really excited. We are now. kindred yeah. spirits, Blakey. Who knows? Who knows? Blakey, top three. Uh, I'm not going to do a three because I love all my children equally and I feel like picking a favourite's really tough. Um, so I'm just throwing out, <laughs> like, like, I love films for different reasons. Um, like, I love American Beauty because I remember watching it as an 18-year-old kid and falling in love with films because... I was like, I'm watching a film about a guy in America having a midlife crisis and yet this film is talking to me, an 18-year-old boy in Australia. And I was like, how is this happening? And then that's when I decided that I wanted to make films for the rest of my life because I just wanted to make a film, hopefully, that had the effect that American Beauty had on me. Once Upon a Time in the West is my favourite stylized film. It is... When I that hit me for six when I first watched that film, like the introduction of um, Henry Fonda when he comes and the, the the locusts stop, they stop like making the noise. It's like the locusts are scared of him. That put fear in me that I had never felt in a film. And that first scene where they're waiting at the train stop, these three dodgy blokes are just waiting for this train to come in, and you hear that harmonica for the very first time. That, that's a film that will stay with me forever. And the other one that comes to mind straight away uh, is a film called St. Ralph, which is a film not many people have heard about. Um, and it's about this kid whose mum goes into a coma and they think he, he's gonna, she's going to die. And they say to him, for her to survive, uh, we need a miracle. And so he's like, fuck. And then he's at boarding school and he's... For punishment, they make him do marathon training. And they go, for you to win this marathon would be a miracle. So this boy believes that if he wins that marathon, that his mum will get better. And it is just such a beautifully innocent film, and I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. So cool. That's my three. Cool. Derek. Uh, so for mine, I, I really removed the ones that were that were I thought were considered to be real favorites by lots of people. And so I really just focused on some ex- eccentric titles. And I won't go into much detail. I'll just tell you what they are. Um, the first is Cameron Crowe's Vanilla Sky. <laughs> um, super ambitious. And um, wow. uh, uh, it just takes me all sorts of places. And I love the performance of some reason. Have you seen, oh, what's the movie it's based on? Um, uh, Open Your Eyes. Open Your Eyes. Have you seen yeah, Open Abre Your Eyes? Abre Los Ojos. Um, yeah. Uh, but I saw it after, so I like Vanilla Sky better. Yeah. <laughs> um, my number two is Bound, the Wachowski's first film which I think is absolutely fantastic. Good movie. Yeah, it's got it packs so much into just a small set and this 
intelligent crime thriller with everybody making really smart decisions and double-crossing each other, and it's great. My number one is one I've probably mentioned on this podcast before, Cable Guy. I just love uh, the Cable Guy. It's trying to do a lot of social commentary, and uh, Jim Carrey's fantastic in it, and mm. I just love it. So that's it. Uh, my top three. I was thinking about my top 20 favorite films and all the ones that I really loved, like Zoe likes True Romance, I think everybody loves. Like, I think the reaction or the emotional response Zoe has from True Romance, I get from Goodfellas, which is like a, a super popular film. So I decided to choose three maybe slightly obscure foreign movies or obscurish foreign movies from my top 20 just to highlight. Literally, there's three I pulled out of the bag. Um, uh, number three being Days of Being Wild, the Wong Kar Wai movie. Uh, number two being The Return, the Andre... Uh, I'm going to try to pronounce his last name. Zvayaginsev. Interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, film. He, he also made um, Leviathan. And he has a new film out this month. Um, cool. What do you know what it's called? I do, I've forgotten. I'm going to um, check it out. And the um, number one is Winter Light, the Ingmar Bergman movie. Oh, nice. Three movies from my top 20 that... You didn't think to put Paddington Bear in there? Because oh. I'm pretty sure <laughs> n- none of us share the appreciation for that. <laughs> Have you seen Paddington? Pa- the, the Paddington movies are awesome. He's convinced me. And oh. it, didn't you tell me it was by the guy who did The Mighty Boosh? Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah but, the, but the guy who directed a lot of the episodes of The Mighty Boosh... He directed the two Paddington movies. And the Paddington one was so good, I drove on an 88-minute round trip to see Paddington <laughs> 2 by myself. <laughs> Paddington's great. Can we each do one quick thing of what we'll miss about Zoe? Nah, that's all we've got time for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, what are you going to miss about Zoe, Derek? I'm going to miss her passion and her earnest commitment to the cinematic medium. <laughs> Mikey? I don't, I've only known Zoe for, for less than a year, so forgive me. I love her facial expressions. What she's doing right now is fantastic. I find One thing you should know about me, Derek, if you don't know me, is I hate compliments. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not going to miss Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> this has been The Real Good Podcast. My name is John Romark. Thank you, Blakey, Zoe and Derek. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, for more film stuff, go to realgood.com.au. That's real with two E's. Uh, we've got reviews, more podcasts, all sorts of stuff. Um, thank you. <laughs>